Okay, I am approaching the Climate Justice Rally, which uh, is happening on this uh, fine, drizzly Saturday on the 6th of November in Glasgow. You can hear the helicop helicopter overhead. There's a lot of signs in front of me saying cop out. And uh, yeah, this is Lisa Cliff uh, with my first update on the Saturday rally. Welcome to this special episode of Climate Talks, the podcast following the journey to COP26. It is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Cathy Oak, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jackie Peel. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. Welcome listeners, it's Jackie. This is a special episode of Climate Talks to give you, our listeners, insights into the corridors of COP26. We're going to be hearing recordings from those on the ground in Glasgow after the first week of the negotiations. But before we turn and tune into these climate bites, Cathy, let's talk briefly about some of the highlights and indeed lowlights of week one. So the first week of COP26, Jackie, has been and gone, and it started with the World Leaders Summit on November the 1st and 2nd, where 120 world leaders gathered in Glasgow, kick-started a decade of accelerated climate action. And it certainly appeared that the urgency in overcoming the collective challenge of climate change and keeping 1.5 alive, it has been front and centre of discussions, emphasised by the prominence of many of the world's poorest and most climate vulnerable countries. Yeah, and we've been hearing a lot too from the UK COP26 presidency and also from UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who keeps reminding us about cash, coal, cars and trees. And we've seen some big announcements or pledges on cash, coal and trees, particularly agreements to phase out coal in certain countries, to increase the amount of climate finance, particularly from the private sector, and also a new pledge on stopping deforestation in countries. Australia has been missing in action for many of these important announcements. And, and heading into week two, there are also big questions over the things that haven't been addressed yet, particularly adaptation, the finance goal, and still sorting out some of those difficult issues on the Paris rule book. Yes, certainly. And in terms of things that are missing from the negotiations, while it's Excellent to see so many people present and so many groups um, in attendance. Civil society does seem to be maybe not missing in action, but the voices are certainly few and far between. And, you know, what are the consequences of not having this civil society voice there, Jackie? Look, I think that's a really big issue and we'll probably get back to it next week as well when we look at the week two wrap up. But civil society is increasingly not in the room for this COP in the important blue zone negotiating area. But we're going to be hearing now some updates sent to us by some of our previous podcast guests, letting us know about what they're hearing on the ground at COP26 in Glasgow. 
Yeah, we'll also hear some excerpts from a side event panel, Transforming Australia from Laggard to Leader, where speakers explored the reasons behind the shortfall in the Australian government's climate and energy commitments, the impacts of this shortfall on domestic and global action, and the role that non-state actor leadership is playing in Australia, highlighting opportunities to transform Australia from a climate laggard to a leader. I'm here with Tim Flannery, Climate Council, Honorary Professor, University of Melbourne. Uh, Tim, great to be with you mid-COP right now. How's the COP feel midway through for you? Well, it's great to be here with you, Don, as well. And um, look, the COP is... I'm feeling quietly optimistic about it. I think that um, we're in a, we've seen some quite significant announcements made um, no cop, no single meeting has ever going to deliver, every, deliver everything, um, but there has been some significant announcements. And also, the mood of the place feels different to me. Like, you know, the, the countries that are behind, like Australia, really are being given very little cover. You know, in previous mm. cops, there's always a sense that there's yeah. a bit of a bit of cover for them to hide in. Yeah. That's not the case at this cop. There's real momentum there, isn't there? There really is, so I'm, I'm quite the optimistic. Hey, Tim Flannery, thanks so much for giving up some of your precious time at the COP. Hi, Climate Talks. This is Lisa Cliff from Climate Action Network Australia, the manager of Better Futures Australia Alliance of non-state actors across Australia. I'm calling in from a warm bar in Glasgow following a day at the Global Climate Justice Rally. They estimate at least 100,000 people were there and I definitely believe it. It was a cold, rainy day, but everybody still turned out and put on a great show of support for ambitious climate action in this decisive decade. Last week, uh, the start of the Global Conference of Parties, COP26, uh, kicked off with the Leaders Summit uh, at the front end of the negotiations. So we did see a lot of shiny new announcements come out. So that means there's, there's a lot of details that need to be worked out in next week's negotiations to really make sure we're cutting through the smoke and mirrors and creative accounting that typically takes place in these spaces. So that'll keep us all entertained next week, particularly where the Australian government is concerned. Uh, just given the Australian pavilion is being treated like a bit of a trade show to really spruik uh, particularly fossil fuel interests where I'm sure you've seen in the media the Santos display that was there around carbon capture and storage that is an unproven and very expensive technology and really just um, something we shouldn't be considering to elongate the life of fossil fuels where we need to be transitioning away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible and uh, putting as many emissions into the ground as we can. Yesterday, Climate Action Network Australia's side event had some representatives of the member base of more than 130 civil society and research institutions across the country 
so that was really great to have those voices in the mix. It's very light on representation from Australia in Glasgow. Uh, we, we had, as part of that panel, uh, Dr Virginia Marshall and Pastor Ray Minikin, two uh, First Nations voices, which was really critical given the marginalisation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in this space by the Australian government. And there was also other Kenna members, uh, the Australian Institute, Australian Conservation Foundation, Melbourne Climate Futures and Climate Action Health Alliance and the Witcher Institute speaking to uh, the missed opportunities and the obstacles presented by the current national government in Australia and the fact that the expertise, the knowledge, the ambition is there subnationally across society and the economy in Australia. And really, we are ready on standby to work with our government to deliver our fair share under the Paris Climate Agreement. So that really uh, takes me to what's on the agenda for next week at COP. So there will be a strategy session with the eight other global alliances for climate action from other nations around the world to work with Better Futures Australia to see how we can mobilise more non-state actors, so those businesses, sub-national governments and community leaders at a sub-national level to really raise ambition and ramp up ambition domestically and work with national governments to go further on climate together. So that should be some uh, interesting discussions to see what we can learn from overseas and also look at the multi-level opportunities to get us on track for where we need to be given the difficulties we have in the Australian environment uh, and as you've seen in the media, I'm sure that, um, yeah, it's, it's just a very tough space to really communicate clearly uh, the, the level of detail and what, what actually delivering a zero emissions economy looks like in practice across diverse sectors and regions. So if we're not getting that at a federal level, let's see what we can do subnationally. So, yeah, next time I speak to you, hopefully I'll have an update on that. All the best. Good morning from Glasgow. My name's Don Henry. I'm Professor of Environmentalism at the University of Melbourne, and I'm honoured to be welcoming you today to a session that's looking at transforming Australia from laggard to leader. And we're joined in this session by a great panel of civil society leaders from Australia. Could I firstly invite Richie Merzian uh, to present to us? I'll begin by setting the scene for where Australia is at in terms of its contribution to climate change. Australia is a major greenhouse gas emitter. In fact, it is in the top 10% of global emitters around the world. Australia emits more than 40 countries with larger populations, including our host here, the United Kingdom. Despite having a population more than twice the size of Australia's, uh, the UK emits less. And it's got one of the highest per capita emissions as well. That's just what it emits onshore. Australia's carbon footprint, though, really should be expanded to what it deals out to the world. 
and the emissions in all the coal and all the gas that Australia sends offshore is more than twice the size of what it contributes directly at home. In fact, when you add up all that coal and all that gas, Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world after Russia and Saudi Arabia. And according to new research from the Australia Institute, it only wants to grow that further. There are over 100 new fossil fuel projects in the pipeline, over 70 coal projects, over 30 gas projects. I mean, since the Paris Agreement, Australia has tripled its gas production and is now the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas. And you can't solve climate change, you can't have an energy transition if you keep growing the problem. And that's the problem, fossil fuels, and it's heartwarming to see the United Kingdom actually tackle that head-on with its energy transition day yesterday. But the Australian people are also part of this. There's over $10 billion spent every year in subsidizing fossil fuels in Australia. And for those who were at the Paris Agreement, they'd remember there were global protests against the new Adani coal mine. Well, just this month, Adani shipped its first call from its Carmichael mine in Queensland. So there's a lot of work to do in addressing the problem in Australia, which is high emissions, but also even higher fossil fuel exports. Now, while it's good that Australia has a net zero by 2050 pledge, something that was quickly whipped up two days before the Australian government took off for its international expedition to Glasgow, the plan itself is a fraud if it allows fossil fuels to flourish. And that's what it does. It's based on the best possible assumptions that everything would work right and the technology would be our saviour, really. It also, according to new research and that was just published in the Sydney Morning Herald, is based on offtake agreements, which is that the Australian public would pay to lower the price of technologies to subsidise further the pathway rather than finding ways to make polluters pay. But the real issue is that there's no immediate impact to Australia's net zero by 2050 plan. And that's what we're looking for. How do we make 2030 count the decisive decade, as President Biden put it? Richie, thank you very much for those comments. Really appreciate it. Now let me introduce Pastor Ray Minicom. Ray, would you like to offer some comments for us, please? Yes, uh, first of all, on behalf of my ancestors, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm here on, uh, Scot on the land of the Scottish people, and I want to acknowledge their elders and the ways in which they have looked after their country and looked after their people. Um, I guess I'm coming here, this is my first attendance at one of these conferences here, and uh, I just want to say, from my perspective, my observation, I'm very, very disappointed in our Australian government because it's clearly demonstrated that they are a bunch of hypocrites because the government here is supported by the mining industries and all these extractive industries that have come here and showed us, or trying to show in the world actually, what they're doing. That's such a hypocritical act that they've done here because this is a climate change conference. It's not a trade conference. It's not a trade fair. And so they brought all this equipment, all of these people to show all of their stuff. There is nothing to do with our Aboriginal people and all the things that we've, we, we bring to the table. And so we, it, it's like we're ter terra nullius again. We're just, not, we don't exist. And so when, when, when Scotty Morrison says, you know, he's doing this for all Australians, I just want to say to him, it's minus one. I don't want to be included in your, your vision of Australia because it's not my vision for Australia. We face a crisis here that is of enormous risk to our communities. 
and we indigenous peoples are at the forefront of all of these risks. Wherever there's mining, there's always pain and struggle for our people. Wherever there's any of these kinds of extraction industries operating on our land, our sovereign lands, there's always pain and struggle and suffering for our people. And we want to make that stop. We want to have a better say in our country. We don't want to be patronised. I hate being patronised. My head is going bald from being patronised. We don't want paternalism either, a paternalistic government. And this is what this government is doing at the moment. They think that they're being so paternalistic and using these incredible, big, powerful industries to prop up their climate change thing. That's so hypocritical. And so I just want to say to the Australian people, listen to who or watch or observe as to who your government is listening to because they're not listening to you, they're not listening to me. They're listening to the mining companies, their executives and their shareholders. Wake up Australia, we've got a country to save and we haven't got much time to do that. Could I now invite remarks from Dr Virginia Marshall? Look, I think it's really important to start on this uh, position that first of all we do acknowledge those elders past and present and emerging because on their incredible legacy we're here today and for all Australians and people who visit us from uh, across the world, uh, it's an Aboriginal environment. Uh, we've been looking after this for 60 to 80,000 years and we are leading and we've always led. Uh, the issue is that we have to have Indigenous peoples at the table leading. And I can see across many of the institutions in Australia that basically this is not happening. And another issue that we have as well is Indigenous science and knowledge. Now we know uh, across the uh, ANU, for example, that Indigenous knowledges is a really important part of climate change solutions. And I, I know in the work that I'm doing at the ANU, it means that we're looking at how we can use that knowledge to support the Western science, so that's critical. And having young people uh, across the world, Indigenous young people as well, which we have uh, a lot of demonstrations today and people really standing up for principles and obligations that they know as uh, being part of this human society, that's really important. So, you know, there's a lot of work we're doing, but we also need uh, a radical change in the way that we look at our laws and legislation because as a practicing lawyer, we need to put human rights back in uh, legislation. It can't happen on its own. We have to have bipartisan support of all of those senators and the MPs across Australia and across the world that can see that we need that security, not only in water, but also, as I said, with Indigenous knowledge and sciences. We need a federal bill of rights. I think um, Michael Kirby's been saying that for years and many others. Uh, but we also need truth-telling because every place in Australia has uh, a dark history and we need to also elevate those stories in truth. So if we start in truth, this whole experience at COP will be worth it. Jackie. I just wanted to highlight as a final thing the role of the international community uh, and international pressure on Australia. At the beginning of the year, it was probably hard for most of us to contemplate that our government would be going to Glasgow with a net zero by 2050 target. That might not seem like a huge step, 
but I think it was brought about largely because of the international scrutiny, the international pressure um, coming from both governments overseas and communities around the world asking why isn't Australia doing more. That's been particularly First Nations people, it's been youth, it's been um, our Pacific neighbours who have just continued to prod uh, the Australian government and, and voice their concerns of the need to keep 1.5 alive so that they can remain alive. So I think that the international community has played a big role in allowing Australia to step slowly towards a net zero target. And what I'd like to say to our international colleagues is, is keep up the fight. And in Australia, we'll do our very best to amplify that through all of our voices by taking action forward as much as we can to improve Australia's contribution to a safe climate future. So a quote that I found on Twitter from Kate Hampton that really put the last week of negotiations nicely is there's more progress today than was imaginable even two years ago yet we're still failing against the real measures of science and justice. So we now enter into the final critical week of the COP26 negotiations. Stay tuned for more on our next episode of Climate Bites. Thank you to all who provided their voices in this special episode of the podcast and to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Jackie Peel. And I'm Cathy Oak. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast, produced by Greta Robinstone, Rebecca Markey Towler, and Ariana Dickey. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music, taken from their album Only One Way to Head. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to Climate Talks via Spotify. Apple Podcasts or the podcast page in the show notes where you'll also find more information about this episode and our guests. You can also follow us on Twitter at at Network Cities and at MCF Unimel. Thanks for listening.